I've been doing plain spoken for about a year now. A lot of you who've been watching have kind of seen as I started off in the United Methodist Church, and then I disaffiliated. I've been global Methodist clergy for some time, and then I've been leading my two churches through a, uh, a discernment period, looking at different Wesleyan denominational options. This last week, both churches met independently, their church boards, and decided that they were going to go ahead and call for a vote of the membership on whether or not they'd like to join the Global Methodist Church. Surprise, surprise. I hope you've enjoyed uh, the series that I've done on other Wesleyan denominations. Just this week, I, I'm hoping to have produced uh, an interview I did on the Association of Independent Methodists. And while there are a lot of great denominations that are holding the standard and the banner high, uh, the Global Methodist Church really needs a fair shake, and so um, we're going to take our vote here in three Sundays on October 15th, and um, I realize I need to do my part as clergy to equip my churches, and uh, so I'm going to do at least a two-part series here equipping my churches for this vote. Um, so if you belong to one of my churches, then you are watching the right video. But um, also, I thought this would be good more broadly for people to understand the foundational things in place if you or your church are looking at affiliating with the GMC, what it is that they say is important, and uh, what the process is for doing that. So I've got my screen pulled up for you. This is the uh, Global Methodist Church's website. It's globalmethodist.org if you go there. And um, if you go to the menu function, Right here and under about, you go to FAQs, which stands for Frequently Asked Questions. Um, what is the Global Methodist Church is number one, and number two is how does a congregation join the Global Methodist Church? And you see that the following motion must be adopted by a simple majority at a congregational meeting. I move that, the name of the church, become a member congregation of the Global Methodist Church, that it affirms and endorses the doctrinal standards social witness, those are part one and part two, and church governance of the Global Methodist Church as set forth in its transitional book of doctrines and discipline and agrees to be accountable to such standards, witness, and governance. Our leadership and trustees are authorized to take all actions necessary to implement this motion, and then it has further procedural stuff down there. Um, how is it that congregations are going to take a vote on these things and uh, not be familiar with the doctrinal standards and social witness, as well as the church governance model? Um, I, I think I would be right in assuming that the vast majority of churches taking this vote really don't know much about these sections. And um, part of what I have done on my Bitter Medicine series is kind of call churches out for not taking enough agency in the United Methodist Church and um, I, I just think if we're going to do the, the Global Methodist Church better, that means we, we darn well better know what's in our uh, shared covenant document. So this episode right here, what you're watching, um, I'm going to cover just part one, the doctrinal standards found in the Transitional Book of Doctrines and Discipline. I've got my producer TJ here with me, who's also a member of the No Water Church that I serve. And the, the format hopefully here is going to be me walking TJ through this stuff and him serving as kind of an avatar for you. You know, I've been doing UMC, GMC speak. Uh, I mean, I get paid for it. It's like my chosen vocation. TJ's, that's not him. So we'll, we'll walk through the doctrinal standards. Um, and I'm going to have to apologize on the front end. Um, we're not going to do a good job because <laughs> there's so much doctrine 
that there's no way, I mean, even if we had 24 hours, we would not be able to cover it very well. So my hope is just that this kind of whets people's appetite. Next week, I'm hoping to have my brother here in the, the, the studio, and we'll cover the social witness part. And then I'd like to keep going through the transitional book of doctrines and discipline for people who really want to see how everything's lined out right now, laid out right now, and then come back and really dive into the doctrine uh, headlong. So, TJ, you ready to get started, man? Yeah, it's been a while. Since you and I have recorded something together? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, TJ's been in the midst of selling a house. He's been very busy, but uh, yeah. he's been nice to to still put out a lot of the videos that I've recorded and stuff. So yeah, and I haven't I haven't read through any of this stuff at all. So I'm yeah. I'm coming fresh face at this. Yeah, you're not so. you're not faking anything. He's not faking anything at this as he is uh, being. Now a lot of this is going to sound familiar to you because you and I are in our class meeting together mm -hmm. and we've talked a lot of Methodist. Well, a lot of it's history. like. UMC stuff, yes. like the same same stuff. Very similar. All, all the good stuff. Take it to the GMC. <laughs> they they've 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 accumulated even more doctrinal standards than was in the United Methodist Church. I would say that they've doubled it, but I I I mean we'll we'll see it here in a minute. Um, this is so the transitional book of doctrines and discipline is not a book in print. I don't think. I think it's only PDF uh, digital, and you can find it online for free. You don't have to pay any money for this. TJ, let's make sure to put a link to it in the show notes for anyone who doesn't have it yet, so you can go download it. It's called The Transitional Book of Doctrines and Discipline of the Global Methodist Church. So this was crafted by Keith Boya and a crew of, I want to say, at least 20 other people who knew what they were doing. It's much smaller than a United Methodist Book of Discipline, much more streamlined, and that's what it's supposed to be. It has just a few pages where it acknowledges the uh, TLC, what is that, Tra Tra Transitional Leadership Council. All this is going to get formalized at the first convening conference next year, hopefully, but this is going to serve as the backbone that they then augment and build on top of. Um, I, I'm pretty sure that everybody's resolute that we're not going to to make a huge behemoth book of board of ord book of discipline, um, like the United Methodist. United Methodist Church started small and got bigger every year. Uh, we're not going to do that. Have they set a date for that yet? For the convening conference? I think they have, but I'm not sure. I'm Googling it real quick. <laughs> I'm a bad clergy. So until something's like a month away, it's just really not real to me. So um, I know we've got a convening car, uh, conference for the Heartland Conference. Yeah, that's uh, November. Yeah, you, you should know that date because you're going to be photographing there, aren't you? Yep. Yeah. All right, so what we need to do, there are some sections that we need to read word for word uh, starting at the beginning of part one, and then we're just going to skip around after that because there are several foundational documents for us to consult that we don't have the time for. The, uh, the section begins with um, some history, paragraph 101, Our Heritage of Faith. As a Wesleyan expression of Christianity, the Global Methodist Church professes the Christian faith, established on the confession of Jesus as Messiah, the Son of God, and resurrected Lord of heaven and earth. This confession expressed by Simon Peter in Matthew 16, 16 through 19, and Acts 2, 32 is foundational. It declares Jesus is the unique incarnate word of God, and he lives today, calling all to receive him as Savior and as the one to whom all authority has been given. Sound good so far, TJ? 
Sounds fine. Yeah. yeah. It, Off to a good start. Very good. So we're we're Christians first. Methodist. This is one of the things that I think Methodists forget to capitalize with non-Methodists is mm-hmm. we're not like Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses. We stand in the firm tradition of the universal Christian church throughout the ages. So the thing that separates... We have a little bit of doctrine that separates us, but it's it's supposed to be more praxis, like how we make doctrine real in our lives. But that's for another segment. Here, Here's... Um, all right, point two. This faith has been tested and proved since its proclamation by Mary Magdalene, the first witness to the resurrection. It was defended by the women and men of the early church, many of whom gave their lives as testimony. Their labor, enabled and inspired by the Holy Spirit, resulted in the canon of Scripture as the sufficient rule both for faith and practice. The Greek word canon means rule. So when we're talking canon there, we're not talking about military armament, we're talking about the the Bible, the, the books that are established as uh, the, the Christian canon. It formulated creeds, the church, the early church did, such as the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Chalcedonian definition as accurate expressions of this faith. Are we still good, TJ? So far. Okay. Yeah. In the I'm si- going to try not to be picky about specific things. Well, I'm, I'm kind of interested in uh, things that you pick up on. Uh, well, and this is probably nothing to be... I, I I am... I like zero in on stuff that's probably nothing at all. Um, Say the Mary Magdalene thing. It wasn't the Mary Magdalene. That's oh, okay. It's whatever, yeah. like okay. I mean, it's not fake. It's the next thing. It's defended by women and men. Usually, you would... Whenever you say something like that, we've met in women. That's just how I feel like everything's been written for ever. So it's just they're that, interrupting convention to yeah, establish. Yeah, and, and I don't know yeah. if they're intentionally okay. doing that. And it could be completely no. Nothing. I, no, it could I think be just they are. Just I think like over... with the Mary Magdalene thing, and then women and men, that they're making very clear women have a role in leadership, leading the way right. in the global Methodist Church. You think they intentionally did that? Absolutely. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, All right, point three. In the 16th century, the Protestant reformers preserved this testimony, uh, asserting the primacy of Scripture, the necessity of grace and faith, and the priesthood of all believers. Their doctrinal summations, the Augsburg Confession, the Schleitheim Confession, the Anglican Articles of Religion, and the Heidelberg Catechism bore witness to this faith. In the 17th and early 18th centuries, pietists in all traditions sought to emphasize the experiential nature of this faith as direct encounter with the risen Lord. They worked to develop the fruit of this faith by the power of the Holy Spirit in individual and communal life. These pietistic movements influenced many in the Reformation traditions, including two Anglican brothers, John and Charles Wesley. So kind of what they're doing here that's interesting is they're acknowledging the Reformed um, religious tradition as having informed Wesleyanism, and then pietism as well. So they're they're kind of establishing the theological doctrinal lines through which we emerged. I haven't heard many Wesleyans acknowledge any kind of Reformed theology. You think they're just like, let's not talk about that at all. It's Well, I mean, that's the Heidelberg Catechism right there, I think. Um I don't think that's... I don't know any of those. Like, I know the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed, but I don't I don't know the wording of any of those specific... Yeah, I'm pretty sure the Heidelberg Catechism is Reformed in nature. I think... Uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't tell you a single thing about the Schleitheim Confession. Um, the Anglican Articles of Religion is um, 
uh, well, that's the backbone for our Articles of Religion, which we'll get to in a minute. All right, let's go to point five. Through the organization and published works by these brothers, a distinctly Methodist articulation of Christian faith and life of practical divinity emerged. Methodism placed particular emphasis on the universal work of grace, the new birth, and the fullness of salvation, entire sanctification or perfection. Methodists created structures and com uh, communities alongside the established church to facilitate the mission to reform the nation, especially the church, and spread scriptural holiness over the land. All that sounds familiar to you, right? Sure, yeah. Well, I, I, the practical divinity, I don't know what he means by that. Well, I, the, I, th mm. I mean, I've read a good deal of John Wesley. I'm, I'm certain he contradistinguished that between people who are holy in some kind of a, a detached way from the world. No, Methodists are ens ensconced in the world and planted in the world, interacting with worldly people and holy in very practical ways, how we go through our lives, how we do business, how we conduct our marriages, oh, how okay. we raise our kids. Just a weird wording to me, but I get that makes sense. Yeah. No issue with that. Fine. As Methodists moved to America, they brought this expression of faith with them. Although Methodism in England remained loyal to the established church until after John Wesley's death, the American Revolution dictated the formation of a new church independent of the Church of England. Accordingly, in 1784, while gathered in Baltimore for the Christmas Conference, the Methodist Episcopal Church was formally constituted. This is just good basic history. This new church adopted John Wesley's revision of the Anglican Articles of Religion, the Methodist General Rules, a liturgy, and ordained the first Methodist clergy. Two other sources of authority were identified, the four volumes that included 53 of Wesley's sermons and his explanatory notes on the New Testament. When a constitution was adopted in 1808, the restrictive rules protected the Articles and General Rules from revocation or change. Anything to mess with or point out there? No. That's, okay. I mean, that's what the UMC believes, too. The, the yeah. problem is they... I, I, well, they've got it on paper. Yeah. They don't actually believe it. Yes. That's the problem. Yes. So. So great. Great paper so far. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Point A, other Methodist expressions of primitive Christianity and the scripture way of salvation emerged. German-speaking Americans from pietistic reformed Anabaptist and Lutheran traditions created organizations with doctrine and discipline nearly identical to the English-speaking Methodist Episcopal Church. The work of Philip William Otterbein, Martin Boehm, the, and Jacob Albright established the United Brethren in Christ and the Evangelical Association. A number of African-American Methodists, including Richard Allen, Jarena Lee, and James Varick, helped establish the African Methodist Episcopal Church and the Afri African Methodist Episcopal Church Zion to address racial discrimination and the injustices of slavery while preserving doctrine and discipline. So in an official sense, we adopted the German-speaking doctrine. We'll see it below from the Evangelical United Brethren. That's what they combined in. But the, the AME and a AME Zion, I don't think the United Methodist Church ever combined. They came out of the preceding body of the United Methodist Church. It's interesting that they're trying to, to take their, their doctrinal history into themselves when the United Methodist Church never took them into themselves. So it's just an interesting move. I think it's done with the intention of saying black theology is welcome here. Point nine, 
Through separations and mergers, Methodist Christians have preserved testimony to the risen and reigning Christ by holding themselves accountable to the standards of doctrine and discipline, beginning with early Methodist work in the Caribbean. This Wesleyan understanding of doctrine has now spread across the globe, flourishing with the unique contributions of many cultures. When the UMC was formed in 1968 with the merger of the Methodist Church and the Evangelical United Brethren, both <clears throat> the Methodist Articles of Religion and the EUB's Confession of Faith were accepted as doctrinal standards and deemed congruent articulations of this faith. For 50 years, the growing voices of Methodists in Africa, the Philippines, and Europe have joined in the engagement to maintain our doctrinal heritage, promoting fidelity to the doctrinal principles that launched our movement. The Global Methodist Church preserves this heritage. Yeah, they're definitely trying to like say, you know, there's all of these other Methodist movements and we just kind of believe what they do too. Like they're trying to, they're definitely trying to make themselves global in, mm -hmm. in the sense. Um, Which is their prerogative. Yeah, I guess if this is their new story. This is the story of a new organization, the global Methodist right. Church. So um, whether or not, yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's laudable for the most part, yeah, um, so fine. long as it's something that they maintain. Yeah, yeah. All right, the, the second section here is the Wesleyan way of salvation. So this is uh, a, a doctrinal synthesis, really. I don't know who authored this, but um, I read through it earlier today. Um, let's see what you think of it. The gift of grace is available to all persons. Our Father in heaven is not willing that any should be lost, that's from Matthew 18, 14, but that all may come to knowledge of the truth, that's 1 Timothy 2, 4. With St. Paul, we affirm the proclamation found in Romans 10, 9, quote, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So it's directly arguing with Reformed theology. Which is what, yeah, what you would expect from an Arminian standpoint. Yeah. I have no problem with that. Okay. I, I definitely, I obviously, you know that I lean Reformed. Yes. But I have no problem with an Arminian. Yeah. Like, whatever. Okay. It's expected. Point two, grace is the manifestation of God's love toward fallen creation to be freely received and freely given. This undeserved gift works to liberate humanity from both the guilt and power of sin and live as children of God, freed for, jo freed for joyful obedience. In the classic Wesleyan expression, grace works in numerous ways throughout our lives, beginning with the general providence of God toward all. Everything good? Okay. Everything's fine. God's prevenient or preventing grace refers to, quote, the first dawning of grace in the soul, mitigating the effects of original sin even before we are aware of our need for God. It prevents the full consequences of God's alienation, humanity's alienation from God, and awakens conscience, giving an initial sense of God and the first inclinations toward life. Received prior to our ability to respond, preventing grace enables genuine response to the continuing work of God's grace. You've heard about preventing grace before? Sure, yeah, you've... Brought it up, uh, brought it up, multiple times in various sermons. Okay, very good. I'm so. not a, I'm not a terrible Methodist preacher. No, so, no. but yeah, the notion is that we are born enslaved to sin, sure. but God reaches out to us first. Yeah, I mean, which is also the Reformed position. Yeah. So, yeah, no issue. That that we're God. Yeah, no Reformed people believe that the elect are awakened outside of God's grace touching yeah. them first. 
Yeah, it's yeah. him doing it first. All right, uh, point four, God's convincing grace. The way I was taught was convicting grace. I like convicting grace better, but whatever. Convincing grace leads us to what the Bible terms repentance, awakening, awakening in us a desire to flee from the wrath to come, and enabling us to begin to fear God and work righteousness. Pretty standard? Yeah. Okay. Just semantics. Changing semantics. Them. Like the, the words, they're different. I mean, you said, what do you say? Uh, convicting. Convicting, yeah. yeah. They're just changing the word. Same thing. Yeah, okay. Uh, point five, God's justifying grace works by faith to bring reconciliation to God through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, what God does for us. It is pardoned for sin and ordinarily results in assurance. Quote, God's spirit witnessing with our spirit that we are children of God. Of course, that's from Romans. Okay, still run it. Okay. Still good. And then point six, God's sanctifying grace begins with God's work of regeneration, sometimes referred to as being born again. It is God's work in us as we continually turn to him and seek to be perfected in his love. Sanctification is the process by which the Holy Spirit works to replace sin with the fruit of the Spirit. With John Wesley, we believe that a life of holiness or entire sanctification should be the goal of each individual's journey with God. No, <laughs> no issue. You're, you're waiting for me to object. Yeah. I don't know. No. Yeah, I have no. No, objective. I just think it's helpful to to walk through that and then. It's it's definitely very. Uh, it's laid out more than I think a lot of um, denominations are, which I appreciate because I like the systematic theology kind of stuff, and mm. it's they're definitely systematizing it, like laying it all out. I'm, yeah, I'm fine with that. I, I think it's great. Yeah, yeah, they're definitely uh, not including the the backsliding and the the steps off to the side and distractions. But yeah, they they provide a script. Well, I think in in his sermon, John Wesley calls it the Scripture way of salvation. You know how how it is that God accomplishes this work in us. The only issue I have with this is that grace is one. It's not like there are different kinds of grace. Okay, you're, and yeah. God goes. Okay, here's some justifying grace for you, <laughs> and here's some sanctifying grace. You know, it's grace is one, but it impacts us differently based right, on where right. we are in life. And it seems like they're separating. Well, yeah, it just kind of seem like they're separating it into specific this grace, this grace, and this grace. Yeah, 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 yeah. You need you need a little this grace here, yeah. and then when that grows, you can have some of this. It, right. it, it, you can make it sound pretty ridiculous pretty quick. Yeah. So there there just needs to be an acknowledgement. Anyway, rather than rather than grace does all of these things, yes. there's these specific grace. Yeah, it's again semantics. Yes, like eh. we like our words. <laughs> Point seven: Our ultimate hope and promise in Christ is glorification, where our souls and bodies are perfectly restored through His this grace. All right. If anybody has a problem with that. You're weird and probably don't belong in the global Methodist Church. Okay, so yeah, I mean, so the whole point of having these standards is so that there's something to hold people to, right? right. And so th I think the expectation is that all global Methodists are familiar with the Scripture way of salvation here. Does it seem arduous to you to imagine that a whole movement, a whole denomination would be acquainted with this framework? No, if you're joining it, like, if you're joining a denomination or a group, you should know what they believe. Right on. Like. It's just weird that you wouldn't like want to want to know that. It's like, oh yeah, let's join them. They've got some nice clubs and whatever. Well, when you come they out of the United college. Methodist Church and the UMC didn't care to have everybody understand the basic doctrine 
it, the GMC is made up of a lot of the same people who are like, right. yeah, 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 doctor and doctor, give me Jesus, right. whatever, yeah. you know. Yeah. So, and, and hopefully the idea is that it doesn't turn into that again. Like, right? Yeah. So, and that's this is where that begins. GMC pastors like teach this to your congregation. Have everybody like, watched my video? <laughs> that too. That works <laughs> Watch too. this video. <laughs> Listen to it. Send it in the podcast form. Let's go on. Uh, paragraph 103, principles of our life together. Wesley said, there is no holiness but social. By referring to social holiness, Wesley meant that the road to holiness was one that we could not travel by ourselves, but rather involved in the community of faith at every step along the way. I'm so glad they reclaimed this because liberals always use this social holiness thing as like, we have to do good works for social causes, social justice. That's not at all what Wesley meant by it. He meant you can't, there's no such thing as a lone wolf Christian. You, you have to be in community with others. It's not to uh, drive a electric, electric vehicle or... No. Yeah, let's not get into that. Okay. Get, yeah, I'll go, I'll go way off. Let's, let's go back into this. Our, long, <laughs> our longing and hope are that our church may, one, remain rooted and grounded in the scriptures and in the historic teachings of the Christian church as defined in our articles of religion and confession of faith and understood through the Wesleyan lens of faith that our church may, too, aspire to introduce all people, without exception, to Jesus Christ, recognizing that the mission in which we are engaged has eternal consequences. We are committed to carry out the great commission of Jesus in Matthew 28, to go into all the world to make disciples of Christ, teaching and baptizing in his name. Uh, our longing and hope is that our church may, three, lead all those who experience new birth in Jesus— to deepen and grow in their relationship with him, inviting the Holy Spirit to produce spiritual fruit within their lives as they similarly manifest the gifts of that spirit. We encourage all to participate in a discipleship and accountability group, such as Wesleyan class and band meetings, to utilize all the other means of grace to achieve this end. We encourage, but it's not required. Yeah. Which, I mean, I guess I get that to a point, like... You can't force everybody. You could force everybody to do it, theoretically. And then a lot of churches wouldn't join. Right, yeah. yeah. So I guess but it is what it is. They really should. You really should. But yeah, they're not forcing it. Yeah. Uh, the, the church may, uh, point four, model the love of God in order to respond to the summons to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor's as ourselves. To this end, we are committed to fulfill the commandment in John 21 of lovingly feeding and tending to the flock of God and others, worshiping God in spirit and in truth, and watching over one another in love. This the church does until, perfected in love, it experiences the fullness of God's restored kingdom with Christ. Does that sound at all like it's backing away from a literal understanding of the second coming of Christ? Hmm. I didn't get that from it, but I wasn't like... So within the history of uh, mainline denominationalism in America in the 20th, 20th century, there was a, a backing off of the second coming of Christ and like a, a, a metaphorization of what you find in the New Testament with the kingdom of God coming to earth. They're saying, well, by us being holy and helping the world be holy, then the kingdom is all of a sudden among us. And so... I would be interested to see if there's any explicit second coming of Christ language in here. It might be absent. 
the church should recognize that the laity as the people recognize the laity as the people of God and a royal priesthood chosen and empowered for the work of God in this world in full partnership with our clergy. We affirm the participation and leadership of those of all races, ethnicities, nationalities, sexes, and ages in the body of Christ. Uh, the church, uh, we're yearning for the church to encourage, this is point six, and affirm the call of God in the lives of clergy who are grounded in the authoritative witness of the scriptures set apart by the church and recognized to possess the necessary gifts and graces for ministry in alignment and accountability with our settled doctrines and discipline. So we're going to have a laity clergy distinction. The clergy, are, it sounds to me like, going to be held to a higher standard, even as we call the laity uh, part of the priesthood of all believers. Yeah, I guess, I mean, I mean, that makes sense. Kind of, I don't know. I, I, do you see an issue with it? Well, kind of, I don't know. Um, you know, when sports, they, they teach you that your team is only as strong as your weakest link. And so to that degree, I, I do hope that we find ways to have higher standards for laity than in the United Methodist Church, where there's some kind of baseline that if it's not met, there are consequences. But so far, you don't get that sense. I, ideally, that would be the situation, but... Whatever. All right, <laughs> let's go on. Uh, I think we're on point seven. The church should display a Catholic spirit to the church universal, cherishing our place within the greater body of Christ through mutual respect, cooperative relationships, and shared mission with others wherever possible. We envision a global church in which all work together, resourcing and learning from one another to fulfill the tasks of the church given to it by God. Hopefully at some point they point out like what the... Uh Yes, there's a universal church, but what distinguishes that universal church? Like, obviously, Mormons are not going to be part of that universal church or Jehovah's Witnesses because mm -hmm. there are distinctions between them and other Christian denominations. Christian denominations. Yeah. Because to say that they're Christian would... That's a problem. Yeah, yeah. Issue. So hopefully they go on to explain, okay, this is Yeah, I wonder how church. robust their ecumenical dialogue is going to be and whether they have it in them to be like... You guys are out. Yeah, you're not Christians. Yeah, or if they'll just be like, we're you know we're talking about other things. Right. Yeah, and then you turn it into the UMC again. Like he's just big tent. Final one: uh, the church should provide an organization and structure that is able to accomplish its primary functions of support with a connectional polity. Polity is just the way that everything is lined out logistically that can empower and multiply the gifts of all for the sake of Christ's work in the world. So, yeah, that last bit for the nerds. We need to have the right polity. Yeah. But it's important. All right, so here's where we get into the actual documents. So I think the stuff that we've already covered is binding. I don't think it's all just words. I think it's establishing the history and the culture, theological framework of what we're going to encounter in the GMC. But when we're talking about the primary documents um, that are historically tried and true, of course, Holy Scripture comes first in paragraph 104. There's nothing really, I mean, the Bible is first and foremost. After that, you have foundational documents for our doctrinal standards. That's in paragraph 105. Very first is the Apostles' Creed. If you don't know what that is, you really need to. Um, Wait, so, they, so they've got 104 Holy Scripture, but they don't specify what... 
canonical books of the Old and New Testament as specified by the, in the Articles of Religion. Yeah. So the Articles of Religion actually specifies, yes. hey, it's the 66 yeah, they line books. Them out. Yes. It's not in the other ones. Exactly, yes. Okay. Yeah. So why spell it out twice? It's it's spelled out. Right. In it. Okay, so, yeah, coming back to the Apostles' Creed, um, I, I think, I think we, man, so if I come back and do a doctrine piece, yeah, we need to have at least one episode just going through and making sure everybody knows what each line actually means there, because especially in the third part, a lot of people are not quite sure what some of those mean. It's talking specifically about the Apostles' Creed? Yeah. Okay, whole video on Apostles' Creed. Yeah, I think That's it's... probably good. I think it's needed, yeah. 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 I mean, outside of clergy, how many people actually know the Apostles' Creed? I'm very proud of our church. Every time we recite it, more and more people are looking at me rather than at the screen. Yeah. Yeah. A lot more people know it. Nicene Creed, of course, was uh, established in 381 after the Council of Nicaea. Actually, yeah. Um, and then the Chalcedonian Confession, this would be the last byproduct of an ecumenical council that we have adopted. This is the one that uh, separates us duophysites, two natures, from the monophysites, people who believe that Christ only had one nature. Um, and then that's the last ecumenical council that we're on board with. So that's kind of how we're tracing out our... Uh, it's not that we have only the Bible, like some traditions, and get rid of the creeds. No, those three creedal formulations we find really helpful. I wish we had the Athanasian Creed. It's really awesome. I don't know... Uh, Do if, we know why they don't have it? I I suspect it's because at the end it has a an anathema pronounced against people oh, who... Oh, no, those are bad. Yeah, yeah, it's really mean. Um, it's a fantastic formulation of Trinitarian theology. Um, so those are the primary documents of the early church. I was going to plug this book, The Story of Christianity by Justo Gonzalez. This is kind of the standard early Christian history, very brief, succinct, um, that, that everybody that I'm aware of has in seminary. And it's a real easy read. But this explains why the language of these is so essential and what it, what it reflects. Um, but if you're not creedal, that's going to be a problem in the Global Methodist Church. The Global Methodist, you know, if you've ever known people that rely only on scriptures, one thing you can't help notice is they disagree with each other, and then they have no way of navigating who's right. It's just whoever yells the loudest or is the best speaker, yeah. you know, the, the, the creeds are the guardrails for reading the scriptures properly. And what you have to believe is that the same Holy Spirit that guided these councils to select the books of the Bible also guided them for establishing the guardrails through which the Bible is rightly read. So if you reject the creeds, you have to realize that you're also rejecting the same thought. Did you just say the council selected the books of the Bible? Yeah, I mean, sort of, yeah. I mean, it wasn't just one. It was a series of councils that got together and said, these are the books that we accept as authoritative. And when you have enough of those councils getting together, there are those 66 that rise to the top. Have you learned otherwise? So, uh, yeah, I would I would disagree with that. There's specific councils that selected them um, because what is the name of that letter from way before the, even the councils? It's like 200s that's listing the books of the... The, mm -hmm. the specific canons, or the yes. specific books in the canon. Yes. Um, I don't know. Then we but get that wasn't that wasn't an authoritative letter either. The sure. Thing that made the thing that solidified it was a series of ecumenical councils getting together and publishing the acceptable list that then became uh, acclaimed as 
the list of the church. Do you know what councils you're talking about off the top of your head? I mean, it did happen at Nicaea, but it's not the only one. So there, there were councils before Nicaea and after Nicaea that participated in this practice. Okay, well, that's a whole that's a whole nother video. All right, because <laughs> yeah, I don't I I don't think Nicaea picked out the books of the Bible. That's a uh, yeah, they did not pick them out. They had already been established long before. Sure, yeah, that they listed. There were just a couple that kept coming up that eventually got worked out, like the Shepherd of Hermas. Right, that was on one of the first lists. Yeah. And so you, you had these series of revisions over time where some stuck. They really didn't, a lot of them really didn't want Revelation to be in there. Right. But by public, public acclaim, they held on to it. But that, that was the process they went through. It was a long-term dialogue through councils. The same minds that came up with these creeds are the minds that uh, uh, came up with the canon. I'm not saying there was a one. <laughs> these creeds evolved over time sure, as well. Yeah, yeah. There were different versions of them where. Uh, well, Sunday Nicaea was 325, and that, that creed's from what? It said 381. So 381, that, but there was yeah. a second Nicene Council. Right. It's been a while since I brushed up on this. So, yeah. yeah, there was the version, there was the early version, and then they augmented it over time, still calling it the Nicene Creed. Um, so these things are not as in stone in the beginning as we would like. They okay. got worked out over time. That's my whole point. We're getting into, yeah, we're getting into the weeds. But this is no, not about I that. mean, it, it, the whole point is that if we're going to rightly treat the scriptures, then we have to adopt the same lens of the as the early church, and that requires that we have patience for these things, read some history, understand it, did, it didn't just drop out of heaven as is. It, sure, it developed yeah. over time to become what it is, and as we learn that story, we're, we learn how to read it rightly, and the creeds are very helpful in that. Right, yeah, I guess I guess my, my pushback would be the timeline on it, which is... We'll figure out our That's timeline. a whole other, yeah. That's we're going to go, get a, a DeLorean and go back and figure <laughs> out exactly well, what I, happened. Well, yeah. I, ideally, that'd be great. Wouldn't it? <laughs> All right, paragraph 106, constitutive standards. Okay, so b before, these creeds are the foundational documents or doctrinal standards. So the following summaries of the apostolic witness disclosed in the Scripture have been affirmed by many Christian communities and expressed Orthodox Christian teachings. So that's the creeds. The next are the constitutive standards. As is the case in many Christian communities, we recognize additional statements of faith that are consistent with the creedal tradition of our church universal, but which also express our church's particular emphases and concerns, as well as our theological heritage of faith. These constitutive standards embody the faith once for all entrusted to the saints and serve as a bulwark against false teaching, providing the framework for the praise of God in our teaching, which is orthodoxy, ortho being right, doxa, glory, the development of our collective theology, and the launching point for our living and service, ortho, straight, praxis, practice, way of living. Recognizing the complementary streams of the Methodist and Evangelical United Brethren faith communities, both the Articles of Religion and the Confession of Faith define the doctrinal boundaries of our church until such time as a combined Articles of Faith may be approved by the church. That's interesting that they make room for combining these two that the UMC kept separate. All right, so the Articles of Religion of the United Methodist Church, there, there were uh, 39 that we got from the Church of England, and then John Wesley edited them. What we've got is the edited version. A lot of it is boilerplate theology. The thing that is absolutely essential that we hold on to to protect us from what happened in the United Methodist Church is Articles 7 and 8 of original or birth sin, original sin, 
standeth not in the following of Adam, as the Pelagians do vainly talk, but it is the corruption of the very nature of man that naturally is engendered of the offspring of Adam, whereby man is very far gone from original righteousness, and of his own nature inclined to evil, and that continually. So that's our anthropology right there. We're born in evil, we're inclined towards evil, we're not good. You're not just naturally a good person. You're not even naturally neutral, able to choose good. You can't even choose good. You are depraved, inclined towards evil. If you are if you are going to be in the global Methodist church and you believe that we are basically good, you are not going to fit in. You shouldn't be in the global Methodist church. Yeah, that's very... It's very, it's very important as a Christian to understand that, Absolutely. not just as a global Methodist. You undo the whole need of the gospel when you say that we're born neutral or good. Yeah. So, and the, the, yeah, the second part, Article 8 of free will, the condition of man after the fall of Adam is such that he cannot turn and prepare himself by his own natural strength and works to faith and calling upon God. Wherefore, we have no power to do good works, pleasant and acceptable to God, without the grace of God by Christ preventing us that we may have a good will and working with us when we have that good will. So it ties into that preventing grace bit. God, if he didn't reach out to you and me, we could not do anything good and pleasing to him at all. So these are, I would consider this the backbone of authentic Christian discipleship right here. If you don't confess these, I cannot extend the hand of, of Christian fellowship to you. I was just going to make a joke about Calvinism, and that just sounds like a... <laughs> Tone deaf right now? Okay. Yeah. Um, also, I'm not going to read it, but Article 11 of Works of Super Irrigation is super important. Uh, but um, we'll conclude that for the Articles of Religion. We'll come back and, and do that. So we're going to do a specific video on... Are you going to do that? Are you planning on doing that with Daniel? Or? Uh, not? No, not next week. Okay. Someday in the future... Uh, if there's a doctrine series, then yes, it would be absolutely well, essential. I, I think that's really important that we go over those specifically. Right? Yeah. I mean, because although the whole first part of this ties into those. Right. So if exactly. you don't know those, then you can't. It's kind of hard to understand the first part that we just went over. Yes. So, I mean, like, we don't have time for it now, but oh, anyone watching this or listening to this should download this and read over the Articles of Religion if you don't have a United Methodist Book of Discipline sitting around. Then you have the Confession of Faith of the Evangelical United Brethren Church. And to be quite honest with you, I've only read over this a couple of times, and not recently. I didn't find anything to pick at. It feels redundant and not necessary to me. Yeah, why would they? Why would they? I'm just like straight to the point. Like, okay, here's what we believe. If the other people believe this too, um, there was a concern whenever the EUB combined with the Methodist Church that the Methodists would eclipse them and erase their entire doctrinal heritage. So as a sign of good faith, they said, we will preserve your founding documents as well alongside of ours because we're no better than you. So they did that on paper, and then they eclipsed them anyway in practice. <laughs> so it is what it is. But I'm not in any position to lead through that and show, oh, here's an interesting distinction. or Yeah, like how different, how different are they? They, they obviously fit, they were consonant enough so as to not serve a problem whenever they combined. Yeah, okay. So, TJ, are you aware that there is a catechism for the Global Methodist Church that was put out? Um, I have heard you talk about it. Do I, I don't know what it actually entails, though. So, Okay, it's it's 60 or 70-some questions, question and answer, all about doctrine. Right, okay, those are the things you were putting on uh, Instagram for the Heartland area. Oh, yeah, TK. we put on Facebook, yeah, Instagram, yeah, yeah. all over the place. That is not a doctrinal standard in the Transitional Book of Doctrines and Discipline. 
Uh, Seedbed, I think, is selling a, a printed copy. They're circulated digitally. It is not an official standard of the Global Methodist Church. It's a useful standard for thinking and talking about doctrine. However, that is not in part one of the transitional book of doctrine. What are the official standards? The articles of religion, right? The Bible. Bible. The creeds. creeds. Apostles. Chalcedonian Confession. Nicene. Then the articles of religion. Articles of religion. The EUB's version of that. The Evangelical United Brethren right. one. And then the general rules sermons of John Wesley, notes on the New Testament. So nine altogether. I think so. And those are the unchanging, you can't change these. These are what They're protected believe. by the restrictive rule. Right, okay. So, and then the catechism, nothing against the catechism, but it is not a standard that is going to be enforced and maintained over time necessarily. That can change whatever. Okay. It's just helpful. These are what, these are the things that you should know. Yeah. Um, teach them. Because it's a catechism, so you're yeah supposed to teach it to somebody. Yes. It's, it, they're supposed to be for kids, but adults really should find it in your hearts and in your heads to learn to memorize and recite things. It's just good for you. Paragraph 107 is the normative Wesleyan standards, representing the normative contributions and emphases of Methodism's articulation of the Christian faith. The Wesleyan standards have, to one degree or another, been broadly shared between the spiritual descendants of the 18th century evangelical renewal led by John and Charles Wesley. These standards teach us what it means to be Methodist, and the teachings of our communities should be consistent with them. So this is the furthest out we're going to get doctrinally, but we've already got a ton of doctrinal content, right, oh, that yeah. would take forever to digest well. But the next one is John Wesley's sermons. Um, this is uh, a, a version put together by Albert C. Outler, who used to be the number one Methodist in all the world. He, he, he kind of put together the United Methodist Church. I've read through it a couple of times. Really a fantastic—he just ed, uh, edited the—if there is any sermon lacking from this list, I'm not familiar with it, but I haven't gone. Those are the full sermons. They're not like abridged or anything? No, they're not abridged. Okay. They're in the original uh, early modern English Yeah. Still hold up, still hold up. I have this fantasy in my head of in the future having people recording themselves delivering his sermons and like rating them. I feel like that's probably out there somewhere. No. You don't think so? I don't think so. I found a bunch of people who put it in modern English oh, okay. who will yeah. like translate it into modern English, and it's so lame. It lacks its flavor. Um, and those are only from the 1740s. Like that's, that's not that bad. No. Shakespeare's older than that. I mean, it's like it's. I mean, you if you understand the King James Bible, this the is true, a, yeah, he's that. a little bit easier than the King James Bible, but yeah. still, there's plenty. I mean, it's very engaging. He was. I mean, very that's, that's a hundred years. Yeah, if you can understand the King James Bible from 1611, you're good to go. So yeah, I, so I know for a fact the Great Assize is in there, um, which is I don't know why they called it this, but it, that's about the Second Coming. That's the mm. only thing I've seen explicitly about the Second Coming in any of this stuff. Um. Anyway, I highly recommend John Wesley's sermons. The next one is the explanatory notes on the New Testament. You're not going to find a good version of this published. This is a garbage version. It's the best one I've found. Um, but really, it's a fantastic thing to invest in, if, uh, especially if you're getting to know Wesleyan doctrine, if you're a lay preacher or something. This is an excellent resource for preaching. Seriously, and it holds up. It's, it's Those John are John Wesley's. Wesley's explanatory notes. Yes, okay. they are. Yeah, and he's also got Old Testament explanatory notes. Why does that why is that version 
garbage? It's just copied and pasted words. Okay. Somebody put it in in word format and then just copied it and pasted it in there and put uh, uh, page numbers at the bottom. Oh, okay. but everything's in Roman numerals. It's it's oh, hard to navigate. Gotcha. I see. What you're um, yeah, the formatting is just terrible. I'll okay. let you look at it later. But um, I mean, it's still worth. I mean, it's pretty cheap, so it's it's worth the uh, the the paper it's printed on. And then the final document I think is the General Rules of the United Societies. And if you guys want uh, TJ and I actually recorded a three part series going through this. Heck, that was a year and a half ago, probably now. Yeah, when I think I that was on the church's and, page, though. Yeah, so we can share. We can we can share it. Sure. Yeah. I'll, again, I'll if link. we need to, but it's a fantastic document. It's definitely marked by its time. But you know, you've heard the general rules. Okay, if you've ever heard, um, do no harm, do good, stay in love with God. You don't know anything, you poor baby. Um, first off, the third is attend upon the ordinances of God. But under each of the three, it has specific examples of the ways that you don't do harm, the ways that you do good, the ways that you uh, attend upon the ordinances of God. And they're very helpful. And they used to be uniform expectations for all Methodists. Otherwise, John Wesley would not give you your class meeting ticket and you could not participate in the society. So very uh, worthy document. And then the last thing in this section is paragraph 109, the restrictive rule in continuity with our Wesleyan heritage, the governing body of the Global Methodist Church shall not revoke, alter, or change our articles of religion or confession of faith or establish any new standards of rules of doctrine contrary to our present existing and established standards of doctrine. So the the funny thing is they've this is the like the longest list of required doctrine in any Methodist denomination that I'm aware of. The hard thing about all this is gonna be maintaining all of it. Like, if if people really do get familiar with all of this stuff, we are going to be a very doctrinally robust tradition, which I would love. That'd be great. But the question is, how much are we going to insist on these actually being normative for the GMC, and then how much are we just going to focus on good feelings and good intentions, you know? Yeah. As you make your way through there with me, TJ... Does it seem to you that anything is lacking? Having not gone through the specific articles of religion and everything, mm -hmm. um, it's hard to say. Okay. I would have to go through all of that and see, see like, I, I don't foresee there being any, like, thing that I'm going to, like, disagree with or think that it's lacking. I mean, it looks like it's fairly well put together. Mm -hmm. Like, they they included a lot of stuff, so I don't think there's anything that I, I could find that would be lacking. Off the top of my head. Like I said, I would have to go through the rest of it. Right. Okay. Which we will do. So, Yeah, that'd be fun. I don't know. I, it's not like the most sexy and exciting thing. I know some people like watching only my stuff where I'm like <laughs> incensed at something wrong that somebody's done. But, you know, really part of what killed the United Methodist Church is we just stopped talking about doctrine. And, you know, uh, I know a lot of people hate John MacArthur, but, you know, it's not only a, a Methodist thing where people have stopped wanting to talk about doctrine. There's a saying, doctrine divides, and John MacArthur says, yeah, it divides truth from fiction. Yeah, it's <laughs> supposed know? to. And that's the whole point, you know, and if we stop loving doctrine, then that's indicative that the evil one is corrupting our hearts so that we're indifferent to lies, um, and we don't love the truth. You know, eventually when 
when you know you have good doctrine, you love talking about it. You love hearing about it because you know that you are instantiated in the truth. But I think um, our um, unfamiliarity with it, the fact that we've chosen to be unfamiliar with it, indicates that we're deeply insecure, that we don't know what we believe or if we're standing on the truth. So, what you know, you, you came into the Methodist fold a couple years ago. You've gotten yeah. to be a part of a Methodist class meeting for a while. How, how much hope do you have? How, how realistic do you think it is to hope that our good doctrine that we have on paper actually inform the kind of denomination that we create now? You're asking me, and I'm, a, I'm really pessimistic You're in a pessimistic general. Person. Yeah, so. Um, okay, so you I, answered it, the question there. What do you think would be necessary if they're going to realistically have this and say this is going to inform us as a body? What kind of things could leadership do that like communicates that to you where you're like, oh, man, they actually are kind of serious about it? Um, kick people out. Okay. Like if you don't believe specific – like there's there's a, a difference between like disagreeing on certain things like eschatology, um, but if you disagree on like uh, – who Christ is and and uh, whether we have original sin or not, I think that's very important. Um, if you allow those people to stay in the group and not kick them out, you're going to turn into the United Methodist Church again. Mm -hmm. You have a big tent where everybody believes whatever, and there's no... Eventually, it's just going to be this uh, Laodicea, like the, the lukewarm church. Yeah. So... Yeah, that's a reference to I'll, Revelation where Christ condemns the church in Laodicea for being lukewarm. Yeah, so get get rid of these people on the front end, I guess is what I'm saying. Like yeah. do the do the hard work at the beginning, maintain that mm -hmm. so you don't turn into the UMC again. Yeah. Like Well, so uh, now my mind is going to we've recorded this primarily we're used to recording things with a global audience in mind, but this is actually for our local church here. True, where yeah. I'm wondering how it is that, I mean, you know, the people that I'm talking about now, if they've watched this all the way through, how is it that they've received us all the way through this? And are they going? <laughs> they listen to your sermons every Sunday. You're not, <laughs> you're not nice all the time. Like it's, you, you say hard stuff and they still, they still stick around. So if there's no, people yeah, that yeah. disagree, like, but also I'm not up there in the pulpit going. If you don't agree with me, get out. Well, I'm, I'm I don't saying ever that, do that. So you can throw that on me. Like. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So how how here? Let's let this be the last thing. If if people are listening to this, okay. If you're clergy and you don't agree with this stuff, you shouldn't be clergy. But let's think about laity. If laity are watching this and they're either already in a global Methodist church that's voted to uh, join and they just didn't look at this stuff, or they're thinking about joining and they're looking at how much of this do you think it's right to expect them to agree with and get on board with? And then how much grace do you think there needs to be? Well, not I shouldn't use the word grace. Like leeway, do you think there should be? Like I was clear on my non-negotiable. Articles 7 and 8 of the Articles of Religion, if you don't confess those, you really can't even be a Christian much less a Methodist. Seven and eight are your have to be. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Look like I, ones. I can, I can be in fellowship with someone who doesn't agree with the scripture way of salvation as laid out. As long as they believe in grace, they believe that God saves. I'm not going to require them to get with the program of preventing, convicting, justifying, sanctifying, perfecting, 
whatever. It's all just words. But if someone does not confess that they are born in sin and inclined towards evil and that continually, and were it not for the unmerited free gift of God known as grace, they would be damned. If they can't confess that, then I, I, I cannot seriously entertain that they belong in the church. How, how Are all the standards that are established here as important as that, or do you think that there are some that can be Okay, we'll just work in that direction. Just know about it. Know this is the group you're joining. Okay, so if you're clergy, yeah, should believe all of them. Yes. Okay. I think that's. I mean, if you're if you're joining an organization at that level, yes. Um, I think that's expected. Okay. Like, I don't. I laity. I would be a little bit more lenient with, depending on what it is. Like, how much do you know about certain things? Mm-hmm. Is it just semantics? Like the however many different graces they put in there. Like, um, <laughs> if it's something like that. Well, I mean. Like I've said before, I I tend to be more reformed, and I'm going to a Methodist church, so yeah. like certain things don't necessarily bother me. Like it is what it is. Yeah. How much of it does it like you have to be enthusiastically believing of this versus just tolerate it? Okay. Oh, yeah. Like it's, like it's like gonna I, be the water you swim in. I understand it. Maybe it works out differently in the end. <laughs> Maybe it's not exactly the way that well, I. Well, you don't I think there's to gonna be just Methodist heaven? No, that's no, ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, you know, for my crew, yeah, there's a Methodist heaven. I'm just joking. Um, I, I appreciate uh, the people from my church taking this vote seriously, and I, I hope you found this helpful with me and TJ. Um, for, if you're outside of, of my churches, I, I hope you found it helpful as well. I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm obviously throwing some weight behind the global Methodist church. I'm going to be hopeful about it. I'm not as pessimistic as TJ here. And um, I, I just think it requires that people learn why they believe what they believe and actually put in some time to actually read some things and pray about some things, think about some things. And so, you know, if the Global Methodist Church becomes a body where people are talking more religion, great, because these are the things that lead to life eternal. You know, of course, it's Christ alone that saves, but um, the frustration of the United Methodist Church was we stopped agreeing on who Christ was, and that's because we didn't learn to talk doctrine very well. And so, you know, the whole point here is not uh, lifting up these unnecessary standards, but but talking about the most important thing that that we love and cherish, and there should be ways of doing that that add life to a community, and the Global Methodist Church should be good at that. So I hope you don't feel bad uh, promoting this. Send it to your other church friends. Get the conversation going in your local church about what it means to be a Methodist, what what you should do. I, I'm, I'm hopeful that as I go through these different series that, that people that aren't even in the GMC find it engaging and worthy because it is. Um, so anyway, I'm going to keep this series going. My brother and I are going to get together next week and go through the social section, part two, what was it called? The social witness. And uh, we'll have all the scripture references and kind of talk through that. It's only two pages compared to however many we just covered. And then I think I'll just keep marching through because um, it'll be important to know the backbone that the GMC builds on top of. And there are a lot of people who've joined the GMC don't really know its structure. And so um, anyway, if it's helpful to you, if you'd like to be on board with this project, make sure to subscribe to Plain Spoken wherever you're at, and then just stay on board. And I know that me and TJ are kind of harsh sometimes, and just take it with a grain of salt. Know that we love you, uh, but also we love Jesus, and that, that, that calls us to be a bit salty, you know? So anyway, thanks for letting me be salty, and uh, I'll see you next time. Blessings, friends.